You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it's better than rotting our brain on YouTube all day. I'm Marina Lostetter. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. And this is episode 48. That belongs in a museum! Welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you on and to talk Thank a little you. bit about things that belong in museums and many other exciting yes. topics. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about you and your work and any other fun facts that we should know before continuing on? Sure. I am the author of the Numenon series, which is a space opera trilogy. And the upcoming Helm of Midnight, which is the first book in the Five Penalty series, which I like to bill as Hannibal meets Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn. So it's got lots of fun artifacts to talk about. And then uh, later this year, I also have another book coming out called Activation Degradation, which is a space thriller. You are busy. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Excellent. And sometimes I am always curious, especially for folks who have cross the line and do both sci-fi and fantasy like what do you love about world building like what's your world building geek out i love to build worlds just to break them <laughs> <laughs> yes that so is i really love the, the presenting presenting a world and this is how it works and doesn't this make so much sense and then you get deeper into it and you're like wait no that's not how that goes wait no stop what's <laughs> happening and there's like some dark secret you know <laughs> See, that's, that's the part that, that I always struggle with because you make this beautiful world and you do all the intricate work and then you're like, and now I need to take a hammer to it. And part of you is like, right. I, I get to take a hammer to it, but part of you is like, but but no, it's so it's like pretty in its case and I don't, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't want to break that because it's, but no, you, you got to take the hammer to it. The world isn't worth more if you haven't <laughs> taken it out of the packaging. You can't resell that on eBay, Marshall. Marshall, were you the kid who would build something with Legos and then, like, you didn't want to take it apart, like, ever? No, I didn't do that. Not so much. I was not not that one, no. My husband does that. Partly because there was absolutely no space in my house that I would have been been allowed to get away with that. With my my mother, like, "Mm, no, you have to, (laughs) you got to put that away now. Clean that nonsense up. I love it. I, f- I feel like this is setting us up well for some exciting conversation of building things and then <laughs> breaking them. Breaking them. So um, I take it that artifacts have quite a place in your story that is coming out. Is there anything that you can tell us without it being a giant spoiler? I think so. So okay. um, enchantments are the, the base for the magic system and this all the magic is in objects uh, in Helm of Midnight. And the main ones we focus on in this book are enchanted death masks. So when somebody dies, if they were a specialist in something, you can imbue their death mask with that special knowledge. And it's a very complicated process of making sure the mask is enchanted, yada, yada, yada. And the plot actually revolves around the death mask of a serial killer that was illegally enchanted and gets stolen 
in the opening scene um, and is used for very nefarious purposes. <laughs> where are we? St- I love where are we everything about these that. death masks. It seems like they should. <laughs> yes, and they are these. His mask was in a vault, and then it came out for uh, the chief magistrate's jubilee. And was on display during the party, and basically, chapter one is a heist goes down, and it's, it's always those parties that get you. Yep. I'm telling you. Basically, I champagne starts flowing, and <laughs> I read just that description just walk away. of the book, and I was like, "Oh, we got to get Marina on the show for this." <laughs> <laughs> like, I needed nothing more than than just the description. I was like, "Nope, this this is it. This is the goods." <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> Honestly, who among us hasn't at a party started accidentally cavorting with forbidden enchanted objects? Exactly. <laughs> that was my entire grad school experience. That's what parties are for. Is it is it even a party if you don't accidentally summon the, a dead spirit of a killer? <laughs> accidentally. Not by my you. rule book. Accidentally. Purely by coincidence. I mean when you do it on purpose, it's a different kind of party, but that you know Yeah. So what I love about this topic is just how many things can be artifacts. Mm-hmm. Like you have an ordinary thing, you throw it in a river for a couple hundred years, it comes out again, suddenly it's an artifact. It's yep. special. It's something unique and wonderful. And I feel like that just dovetails in with so many aspects of world building so well because it imbues the sense of history and the sense of where things have been and that your world isn't static it's yes. it's constantly changing and developing and you know moving further away from that time that that artifact was new absolutely um so one funny thing is it doesn't even have to be a hundred years so um my dad grew up on a homestead in oregon he, he wasn't the homesteader but they grew up in a homestead and um they basically didn't have any trash service or anything like that. So there was a trash pit that everybody who, like, within, you know, 100 miles on their little homesteads came out and threw stuff in. Um, and we used to go up there when I was a kid and, like, go through looking for old bottles and things, you know, just for stuff. And uh, a few years ago, it was the trash spot that my dad used to use as a child was designated as an archaeological site. So we're not allowed to go in there and take bottles out of there anymore because the trash that my dad threw away is now archaeological evidence. So those <laughs> so bottles are too special now. They are. It's, it's like literally one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? It's, it seems like a far off time and place. And my dad was like, it's the 60s. It's not that long ago. But things have changed. right? So, and there's, you know, decades worth of trash beneath his, right, from other things. I've been helping my dad clean out his garage, which has been an excavation effort in and of itself. But among the things we uncovered were some, some old, old files of my grandparents. And it was boring stuff. It was tax information and, and you know bank statements and things like that. But among them, my, my grandfather apparently kept a very detailed journal of the things he owned, the, the objects in his house for like insurance purposes, right? Sure. Like he had a little notebook. It was great. It was like, it, it had sections for like, you know, like furniture and movable goods and all kinds of stuff. And we kept it. And I swear to God, Rowena, I thought of you. <laughs> because I thought, you know, in a couple hundred years, there will be historians who would kill for this kind of information. Right. And I know I was one of them, but then Rowena was the next human that popped into my head. <laughs> It would be like, and it's, I want to and know how many chairs you owned. 
because inventories are huge in historical research. You have household yeah. inventories, and you're like, this is how I know what people owned and what people wore and how much stuff was worth because someone was anal enough to write it down. Yep. <laughs> and somehow it got preserved. Right. And it's so easy to just not preserve information at all, you know, yes. even over the course of a century. I mean... How much how much do, does the average American not know about their great great grandparents just because nobody wrote it down? Right. So I was thinking about this the other day that uh, my husband was reading, um, like Caesar's surviving. You know, he's only got like two histories that have been surviving. So he's reading about all the military things, and he'd go, and then they'd like the whole army would get to a river, and they'd be like, and then overnight we build a bridge, and then you'd move on. And <laughs> my husband was like, why? Why are you not telling me how you built this bridge? And I was like, well, he's, you know, writing it for other military people at the time who know how you build the bridge. Today, if we're like, hey, I went and I used the microwave, I'm not going to stop and, like, tell you the intricacies of how a microwave works because I'm presuming I'm talking to people who know how to use a microwave, right? So there's a lot of stuff historically that just kind of gets fanned out because the people who are talking to their contemporaries don't realize that people in the future are like, wait a second, we don't have that anymore. Please explain and it's so cool, too, because it's like those unexplained pieces. Like, that's how you know what was common and what was normal. Right. That it was, you know, it's, it's interesting how the empty space still gives you some kind of information. Right. But I think this contrast is so interesting between, like, these death masks that exist in your world, Marina, and garbage. Yes. Like, that some <laughs> things we know are important, and we are going to set them aside, carefully preserve them, protect them, and some things, like, we have absolutely no idea that they're going to have value at some point. And it's just, it's kind of interesting how I think sometimes there's, sometimes we're spot on on what actually has value, and sometimes it's like, uh, uh yet another manuscript, these are a dime a dozen, we have 15 <laughs> copies, but this shoe that we found in a rafter somewhere, right. woo! You know? Well, and I always wonder, like, are the places where they have the great archaeological finds, like, were those just the garbage dumps of those towns? Like, <laughs> A lot of them are, yeah. yes. Yes. And that's how you know what people ate. That's how you know what kind of dinnerware they used. That's how you know what their fabric weaves were. It all just gets shoved into the trash pit, and then my dad <laughs> complains that we can't go there anymore. So. <laughs> My favorite are the outhouse excavations because oh, yes. people yep. used outhouses basically <laughs> as garbage. Yeah. So like, you know, pottery breaks, you throw it in there because it's garbage. You don't need it anymore. And so now there are, you know, in cities where there were houses with outhouses, there are excavations of the outhouses where there are people literally digging through centuries old crap to uncover the garbage because yeah. we want those shards of pottery or the broken glass or whatever to figure out what the material culture of the time looks like. So literally something that was thrown in an outhouse yeah. <laughs> has and the, value. And the other thing to think about with these things is the good thing about trash is it gets buried, right? Usually that's what happens to it. So it is like it is like accidentally preserved. Whereas today, you know, if we're burning our trash or something like that, that's just, you know, it's going away. But when you bury something, whether intentionally or not, you are giving it a chance to be preserved, whereas things that you just leave out are just going to be weathered and get disintegrated and that kind of thing. So dirt does a lot to help us see what people in the past lived like. 
as does volcanic ash, caves, <laughs> anywhere where you can shield stuff from the weather and the elements helps immensely. Well, and then that becomes also that big fantasy trope of like, here's this, here's this big magical who's a what's it that's far too dangerous and can't be destroyed. So we're just going to bury it and hope for the best that yep. it never comes up again. But right. there wouldn't be a plot if it didn't come up again. So therefore, <laughs> of course, it's going to come up again. If you're really lucky, you break it into like three or five or seven parts and then bury the parts. And no one would ever dig them all up and bring, oh, damn it. <laughs> Who would ever be nuts enough to do that? Well, I love those questions of like, how does stuff get lost? Because some stuff is like intentionally lost like mm-hmm. that. And then you have the stuff that like, I don't know, maybe the town got sacked and someone mistook this like object of great power for a gravy boat. Yeah. And they took it home and they put it in, you know, the China cabinet as like this nice gravy boat. And mm-hmm. many, many years later, someone is looking for the magical vessel of whatever. And in fact, it's it's great, great grandpa's gravy boat. There should be more of that in fantasy. Uh, <laughs> we don't I, get enough of that. We get a lot of like, oh, I guess we know where the ancient thing, we must find it. But there's not a lot of like, grandpa had this in the basement. <laughs> right. Because honestly, like you, you once in a while, you get these stories cropping up of, turns out this person had a Van Gogh in their basement. Right. Yeah. You know, because this does happen. We don't realize the value of things that There was this Monet have. that we just taped to the wall. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. you know, we used the frame for this thing and stuffed it behind the thing that we wanted to frame. And oh, yeah. oops, it was... I feel like a lot of I have seen a couple things. <laughs> like, I want to say that there was an episode of Buffy or Angel, and I could be wrong, where it's like, like, you have, this is the sacred cup of whatever, and you were just, like, holding pens in it on your desk. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? But I can't remember explicitly what it was. But I, I like I like the idea of that the great and powerful will morph into the mundane by, not in terms of the power it holds, but in terms of people knowing that that's what it is. And then it just... Yeah, someone's just utter ignorance of whatever the <laughs> item is. Although Buffy did do that with the like the zombie death mask thing was like, do you like my mask? Isn't it pretty? It raises the dead, American. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you didn't realize hanging that on your wall you didn't know. would create a zombie apocalypse. Hate it when you redecorate <laughs> yeah. and create a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but yeah, lots of stuff does get so you get the accidental misplacement of the object and then you have things like Akhenaten and his whole shebang where you purposely get erased from history because someone was like hmm I don't like this whole monotheism thing you've got going on (laughs) we're gonna erase you and Nefertiti from history if we can by blotting out your name everywhere and covering up your name with other people's stuff but then once in a while some things slip through the cracks and we find them I forget, Cass, you probably know which Roman emperor or someone near an emperor who got blotted out and he got painted over everywhere. And a lot. One of the Severans, I think. Yes, yes. It was Caracalla's. It was Caracalla's brother. Yes. Gaeta? Yes, yes. Yeah. And they discovered. And they discovered an analysis that um, the paint was partially like animal dung. So it was like this extra layer of like blood him out and that is an extra special extra special fuck you to the so afterlife at the same time. Yeah. So that the uh, the technical term is Domnatio Memoriae and 
I'm a fan. I think we should bring it back for certain people. Sounds like a good idea. Them. I'm on board with that. And My apologies to future historians, but you'll thank us really. You don't want to know about the last four years. Uh, and, and they say cancel culture is new. All the history yeah, books no, just skipped no. four years and just boom. Like, I don't understand what happened. Weird. Weird. Collective amnesia. Although, there, like, the, the idea that there is a secret history, either because something got hidden away on purpose or accidentally, or that people just suspect that something happened that got hidden. Like, I keep thinking about the legendary Pope Joan, whether this was true or not. There is, there's the rumor that, that there was some woman Pope who was pretending to be a man the whole time and then, like, gave birth from the papal throne or something like, you know, who knows which scandals got buried and which didn't. Right. And then it becomes rumor. How far from the truth does it get? And so it's like, if you think of, like, you know, Alexander the Great, where, like, half of his stuff is like, all right. Right, that's factual. We know that. And then there's, you know, the Gordian Knot stuff, where you're like, total fabrication, obviously. But then, then there's stuff in between where you're like, wait, it could have happened, or it could have not happened. There are, you know, his death is questionable. We're pretty sure we know, but we're not quite sure, you know. So there's lots of hidden history that just kind of gets blurred between myth and fact. Or also the history that gets hidden because it's politically inconvenient or doesn't match right. like the, the social mores of the time. Like let's yes. just let's just pencil out all the all the buy stuff with Alexander for a while and then <laughs> Right. Let's not talk about let's that. Let's not talk about that. But like no. And then there's lots of points in history where you have like a conforming of the narrative mm -hmm. for like convenience and control's sake like the council of nicaea you know bringing together this is the canonical version of the bible we're just going to ignore all these other pieces of the bible because it helps us narrow down our control and what's expected of everyone and we can rein in all these cults and make sure that we all have the same stuff that we're going by so that we can not have all of these little conflicts popping up at least not for a couple hundred years. <laughs> and then they'll pop up anyway, but that's okay. But that whole idea of who controls history, and, and I mm -hmm. feel like we talked about this a little bit in previous episodes with the words of history, but this brings us now to the artifacts, the physical objects of history. Who controls that? Who controls the narrative? I always come around to the idea of how in 19 years did everyone in the Star Wars galaxy forget that Jedi existed? <laughs> That's an impressive campaign of erasure, considering <laughs> that, you know, they were flipping everywhere uh, during the Clone Wars. But but things like that, what is easier or harder to erase, the, the mental and the verbal record or the physical record? That's a good question. I think at different times, it depends. I mean, I think we're even see we're seeing that, sadly, like right now, where events that happened in our lifetime, people are already like, oh yeah, that's that's not how it happens. Like, we we have video. <laughs> Just this week, there's been this thing on the internet that like, no one argued against the Iraq war at the time. And I'm like, <laughs> Point my order. ass was 17 years old and protesting it. The collective I, denial. I was there. I was, I was, I was, I did that. Like, I think that also happens a lot through like simplifying narratives. Oh yeah. Right? Like a lot, it's really hard for humans to hold really complex, often contradictory things in our brains. But life is full of complex, contradictory things. 
And so we try to narrow that down into a really digestible narrative, right? And stories are great because they automatically do that for us. It's fantastic. But in real life, that can't happen. So when we try to tell stories about ourselves, we inevitably just kind of smooth off the edges. And, you know, we don't want, if we want to tell a certain story about ourselves that makes us look a certain way or makes us feel a certain way, we're going to discard what we feel is the ugly parts or the special parts or that, you know, like if we want to be like, oh yes, the Iraq war, nobody knew until way later that obviously there were no weapons of mass destruction. So obviously we're going to rewrite this to make us all feel like, ah, nobody knew. And that was just a thing we discovered later when, yeah, lots of teenagers were not very happy at the time because we were like, what the hell, right? (laughs) (laughs) What am I watching on TV? Oh God. Yeah. So I think that makes some people probably of a different generation, especially right now looking at it, feel a different way about the narrative, right? Um, versus other people of a different generation who were pretty like, no, 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 no. This is how, how we remember it and how we experienced it. So, uh, it's, it has a lot to do, I think, with the way that humans want to view themselves and tell stories about themselves. Well, and then when you think about how then the artifacts and the objects that tell the story, like come into play, you know, an object means nothing until you explain its importance. Yes. So, you know, you you can, in a lot of ways, erase the meaning of the history of something, even if you can't get rid of the object itself. And not that many objects aren't pretty easy to get rid of, but even if you can't, even if it's too large or too, you know, culturally important, you just change the story. Mm-hmm. And the story changes and all of a sudden it means something different than it did before. I think we're seeing that with a lot of in the United States, especially um, statues of certain people oh. who might have had a certain narrative applied to them, and now we're having a different narrative applied to them. <laughs> and all of them can be different degrees of true or not. <laughs> right? It was amazing to me how many people didn't know that Christopher Columbus was like arrested for atrocities in his lifetime. <laughs> like that was, that's been my one like big viral tweet. Is I just tweeted like, how do people not know this? And people. <laughs> They don't know. Do you they realize don't how know bad you had to be person. to get arrested in the 15th yeah. century? <laughs> <laughs> well, like even more like banal stuff, I think whether or not something, you know, we look at some things as being like, this has been beloved throughout all of our time. And in fact, like something could have been very controversial or people wanted to reject it at the time. Like the Eiffel Tower, I think, I, I, if I remember correctly, you know, we think of it as like, this beloved landmark of Paris that just exemplifies France. They didn't want to keep it. They were like, that's coming down at the fair, right? <laughs> we don't like that's, we're not, that's not. We, we, we no. don't need a giant antenna so, in the middle of the <laughs> middle of the city. Thank you. So like, you know, how stuff changes and becomes, you know, a different story, a different, you know, part of the narrative just over time and how how we adopt things that were not originally part of the plan. Sure. Or how our, our modern viewpoints change what physical record is there. Like all of the, um, you know, Scandinavian graves they have unearthed that's like, ah, yes, that's a very masculine warrior. And then they check the bones <laughs> and it's like... Wait. <laughs> so you have to reevaluate this. And this... then you have to reevaluate it again this... when you have a new. Why was this female body buried yeah. with a spear? Hmm. Why were these two men buried together? They must have been best bros. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I would I take love... you. The letters that and are the, like, I like... would love you like my wife. <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah. That was just a common thing that dudes said to each other. It's just, <laughs> just dudes being dudes. It was. <laughs> 
Well, I love it's like like they find one, you know, like the the one woman buried with with weapons. Like, well, maybe it's some sort of anomaly, or perhaps, uh, yeah. And then it's like it keeps coming up, and you're like, okay, so. In fact, <laughs> these artifacts are telling us something more. that we actually have to shut up and pay attention to because they are speaking louder than our preconceived notions can even shout over. And then we have to even reevaluate again because of things like gender bias. Like, you know, we, we can't tell from a bones what gender a person is. We could tell what they would have been assigned at birth, right? So there's always new layers that you're popping up with. You know, there's probably was a trans emperor in Rome that people are realizing today. They're like, oh, wait, this narrative that we had about this dude, maybe not a dude. Right. So. Right. And we don't, you know, for a lot of things, you know, if we don't have a written record of those people, we don't even know what their definitions of things were. And a lot of the definitions that other people placed on them were from their perspective. So even when you have some written histories, often of many people in the ancient world, they're written by people who are applying an outside lens. So it's like, you know, sometimes the material culture people leave behind is the most honest and only real window we have into how these people lived and what their, you know, actual lives. And perhaps if you really poke at it and dig hard enough, what, you know, their worldview was, what did they actually believe or think? And how did they change their what they wrote down or what they created of their history based on changes in what they wanted to think about themselves. I mean, you brought up Columbus earlier and I, I keep thinking about how the fact that nobody cared about Columbus until, until at some point somebody's like, we need to do a campaign to make Italian Americans feel better about themselves. What can we do to, to, to boost their morale? Well, let, <laughs> who, who have we got? Who, who have we got? Let, let's 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 play up Columbus bit and see see if that makes them Don't feel better. Don't know why you would ever pick Columbus, but they did. So. <laughs> that's where we're at, and that's another thing too about uh, who is who is telling stories about who, right? Because you tell stories about yourself, but you also tell stories about other cultures. So for a long time, what you know, you have to look at what minority groups are being left out of the storytelling. Who's getting to tell their own story versus who's being talked about? And that objects can be helpful in getting to the realness of it because that's, like you said, that's where all of the, the, the firmness is, right? History itself, written history is very ephemeral in the sense that it can change a lot and we can have different ideas about it and different analysis of it. And then when you get back to the physical object, there's more uh, definitive things we can learn about it. But yeah, that material culture can teach us a lot about the people who don't get written about, about the everyday citizens, the poor, the marginalized that we don't get from what's passed down in the written record. Yes. Like even women's history. Yeah. We know even in modern times, lots of women's history was just like swept under the rug. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just wasn't important because they weren't doing important things. Right. Important. Like clothing people. That seems (laughs) extraneous. (laughs) Lots right. of air quotes, yes. Important. <laughs> well, and then who's who's finding this history? If we have, you know, material history, artifacts to find, who is discovering them? And who in a fantasy world can do that? Well, and that's... That's a good question. Part of the challenge with, with it when you're doing 
secondary world building and you present something as here is here is the history of the world when you then go back and be like oh that thing i told you before about the history that's not true it's 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 gonna it's actually something else and i've found at least with genre there is a tendency to reject that sort of thing happening just because unless you thread the needle well just because genre readers are sort of trained to take whatever like info dump they get as an objective truth rather than rather than a subjective like this is just what we think happened 20 years ago if you tell me the mystical emperor sean reigned for a thousand years genre readers will go okay i accept that and if you say ah but what if he didn't what if it was 12 people named sean or something you know like (laughs) it gets complicated and and you do have to to do it well so you don't lose the reader i think is is it's a delicate balancing point to play with absolutely for a recent book that i think did it well was the uh the poppy war by by rf kuang mm. where right at the beginning she has a thing where the main character is like they're talking about some war is like how did this end she's like this is how it happened and somebody else is like that's what's in the book but that's some bullshit we put in the book <laughs> because <laughs> because that's not what really happened at all. So she immediately sets the stage right there of like the information that I'm presenting to you is fact. No, that that could very well be bullshit. And, not so much. And yes. by 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 seeding that early, she allows herself the the ability to keep that sort of thing going throughout the series. Right. And I think that's important. Um, so like the building, the secret history versus the retcon, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Which is kind of what happened in, in Star Wars with the Jedi, right? You know, you start off the first story is like, oh, this ancient order that we barely remember. And then you want to elaborate on this world and everybody loves a Jedi. And you're like, well, crap. <laughs> How do I bring back this really rare order that everybody wants all these stories about? And we just kind of like hand wave them that away. We're like, it's fine. <laughs> they just forgot. Like you said, there was a really elaborate campaign somewhere that we don't know the story of where they erased all of the Jedi. <laughs> so everybody's forgotten about them in the span of less than a generation. Um, I'll say another book that did this really well um, was the novella The Empress of Salt and Fortune. Um, because the whole concept is basically deconstructing an official narrative. Mm-hmm. So you kind of go into it pretty blind on terms of like what exactly the truth is and what the story is going to be. But it's pretty clear as, as it unfolds that the whole point of telling the story is to deconstruct a narrative. And they actually, she, the um, main character does it through artifacts. She's... Um, they are unpacking stuff in an old house and there is a woman there who is basically kind of like helping her and hanging out in any way. Everything is, tell me the story about this. Tell me the story about this. And so through the process of learning the stories, but ordinary objects, she's, you know, telling these stories to um, the monk who's recording everything. And the monk is like piecing together what the real story is in comparison to the constructed narrative. And so it's really a cool way of putting it together. Like this is how artifacts can be a part of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a huge important piece to uh, showing hidden history as well. Um, I think sometimes it's done well with like large things, like obviously in Planet of the Apes, right? The like <laughs> big reveal at the end, you're like, oh, it's... <laughs> That's a very large artifact that's very recognizable, right? So you can 
do a lot of that. And I think it's maybe harder sometimes in a secondary world. Like, a, a, when it's our world, you go, oh, I recognize that thing. I get what's happening here. And you can connect the dots. But when you're doing it in a secondary world fantasy, you really have to pay a lot more attention to how you connect those dots and lay that groundwork for that. Um, so Helm Midnight, I try to do it by, like, basically the characters telling you the way it works, and then I have other scenes that show you the way it really works. Or, like, hints at, they'll keep telling you, like, oh, this is what can happen, oh, this can't happen, and then it'll happen. And so throughout the different, it's told in three different timelines, there's kind of like a fourth little story in there, too, that helps you see that what the overarching state party line is is not necessarily true so i have i've tried to lay that groundwork rather than going back later and be like oh no actually never mind (laughs) psych yeah trying to weave it in from the beginning so that it's clear that like this foundation i'm giving you is shaky versus later just trying to undermine it i think is is really important but i think that there's you know something to be said too for how how do your characters engage with history and engage with you know, what the official narrative is versus their own curiosity. Um, because it, it's, it always amazes me how much we love a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Like, as humans, we seem to be just drawn to a conspiracy theory. And, um, you know, and there are some that just will not die, no matter sure. how many times they get debunked, they won't die. And it kind of, you know, it makes me wonder in some ways, we do in fantasy often treat you know, the the official story as sort of like this gospel truth, unbreakable thing. And it's like, but how many people in your world would actually look at it that way? And how many would be like, oh, no, no, right. no. Every, didn't, didn't you know that they faked the <laughs> dragon slaying of... <laughs> right. Yes. And I do think that's complicated because you're doing the world building right. So you can, you have to find that happy medium between here's what the majority of people believe and here's the truth or here's the hint at the truth or here's the, you know, kook with the conspiracy theory and how do you make sure that all of that is balanced? Like that's a, you know, a fundamental craft problem, right? It's it's basically the balancing act of it all. That would, I just realized that that would be a great story of like, you know, the the kingdom has some legend of like, you know, the king's ancestors killed, you know, slayed the last dragons and made everything safe, but then discovering that's all just a lie Dragons never existed. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> you weren't even there in the first place. It's just, a, just an elaborate ruse that they cooked up of like, oh, don't worry. We killed them all. You're safe. So now we're king. You're good. You're good. <laughs> or you could have variants on like, who was actually on the grassy knoll. You know, like, right. so-and-so took over the kingdom because they assassinated the evil ruler. But, oh, no, was he not working alone? <laughs> <laughs> See, that, like... Marina was saying earlier that is always the challenge with secondary world fantasy is building like either the events or the artifacts or such sufficiently enough to then be able to question and subvert them in a way that your readers are go along on the on-ramp enough with you to be like yeah okay let's go because you can do say like weird time travel stories like surrounding what's actually happening at the Kennedy assassination and like almost every time travel using show or movie has been like what about the kennedy assassination because it's the most fun yeah. what the heck actually happened here thing to use in recent memory but to be able to say build something in your in your secondary world history that you can incorporate that much depth that your reader will fully 
accept and take in enough to then play around with that the reader will be able to get with you with everything you're playing around with like that 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 that's a scary prospect that i don't know how to how yeah. how to pull that off <laughs> it's much harder because yeah because you don't have those cultural touchstones of the real world yeah for somebody to be like oh i see you have undermined this thing that i learned about <laughs> in second grade right no you have to you have to build it up and then you got to break it down right. <laughs> i feel like this is where a certain amount of of rhetoric might come in almost in using essentially the same language to describe a situation mm-hmm. to make it analogous to our world you know yep. not who was on the grassy knoll but who was in the verdant meadow like if you <laughs> just sort of make that a bit of a refrain in the story then like the reader will start to go like oh i get it that's a parallel to our worlds whatever right um la- language use might help key the reader in on what your sort of patterning sure. your, your choices after. Yeah, creating almost articles of faith that are just repeated and repeated so that then when you break those repetitions, yeah, I can see. Yeah, that can work. That can work. That's brilliant, Cass, as usual. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also, you know, trusting the reader to some degree of we have we have an agreement, you and me, reader and writer, that I am not going to throw anything in here that's totally useless. So when I start sprinkling in... So many writers don't keep up that, that agreement. Something that sounds a little fishy about this, you know, this, this official narrative or some, some cracks and fissures in this rock-solid history, I'm doing it on purpose. Right. And that the savvy reader, you know... <laughs> knows this because they know not, they know the deal they know the compact the you know, the contract that we have i'm not sure that's a promise i can fully make <laughs> i think it's difficult but i do think it's important in this kind of world building right if you're just doing like regular world building yeah. and you're just like this is the world and i'm throwing everything in then I, I think you can do lots of like random little fun things but yeah if you're specifically showing the like things being undermined you got to be really purposeful with what you're doing and you don't want to give them too many red herrings right right because you don't want them flailing <laughs> around like, right. what, what am i supposed to believe i don't I, know <laughs> i feel like this might be a flaw we started to see in the mcu when everything is a puzzle box mm-hmm. and but a lot of those threads never end up going anywhere and never end up paying off then the audience starts losing some faith in the storyteller yeah, what are you what are you doing with this? What does this thread mean? Nothing? Is this <laughs> is this going somewhere? Is this happening? No, nothing. That went nowhere. Okay, yeah. great, cool, awesome. Thanks. Of course, also you get the people who presume in a puzzle box and with something that has such metatextual complications as the MCU does, be like, oh, they're doing so they must really be doing this story. So then this character is going to show up. And then when that character doesn't show up, they're like, Oh, you betrayed the th- the idea <laughs> I made up in my head. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And you definitely can't do too many, like, reverse gotchas. So, like, in the X-Files, for instance. I have watched the X-Files a billion times. I still don't know where we ended up. Aliens are real? They're not? Were they here? Were they... Was Mulder's sister? I, I don't remember. I've watched, watched it so many times. I should know. I should know. But there are so many reversals and runarounds and back and forth. And this was real and this wasn't. That it's like, I don't. I, it's such a mess that I don't know if I could ever <laughs> weave it all into something that's coherent. Yes. And it's kind of like, you know, 
there's something to be said for there is the story that that wants to leave an unreliable impression and it's sort of like this lady or the tiger ending but Mm -hmm. that is very difficult to do well and you have to be very obvious that that is what you did not that you're like okay i'm i'm lost someone needs to explain to me what what happened (laughs) i don't back um, and forth don't you don't want to make your reader feel stupid Right. Like you should, your reader should never feel stupid, right, or betrayed. <laughs> Sometimes, as a writer, you just gotta pick a lane as opposed to going. It might be either lane. I don't know. Yeah, stuff like that can work well. I think in like short fiction, like if you're, you know, but like longer stuff where you're really putting in more concrete things, you really you gotta pick a lane. What what is it? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned the X Files because I'm thinking about how, like in the '90s, I watched that religiously, but. Like, if you ask me now, I can't remember a damn thing about any of, like, the, the big myth arc episodes. The ones I remember are, yeah. like, the the, the one-shot episodes that were fun. And I don't, but I don't yeah. remember the, you know, I don't even remember what was what with the bigger myth stuff. Like, there was... Yeah, you can't, because who knows? Because there <laughs> because are so it, many, it is, and then it isn't, and then it is, and then it isn't, and then it is, and then it isn't, that you just, I don't know which way, what did we end on? Is it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> because they did just keep pulling <laughs> the, the ground out The monster you. of the week was where it was yeah. at. Yes, it was. <laughs> that was, what is it? Oh, it's that. It's like, I don't it's know. Right. <laughs> and you know, and you, could, and you could get away with one of those one-off episodes with a, is it, or isn't it? I'm right. not. Uh, because it was, it was, you know... 40 minutes of your life instead of, right. you know, a decade. <laughs> right. And then when you just twist the reader around or, or, or viewer or whatever, around and around and around and around, around again, eventually they just completely lose faith in what you're doing. Because you're like, do you even know? I don't know that they even know. It, it's one thing to pull the ground out from under your reader, but it's another for there to have never been solid ground. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, you have to know what you're doing. <laughs> you you got to know in your brain what's happening. You probably don't want your reader having the floor is lava as their general feeling for yeah, your is... narrative. I, I remember when Babylon 5 first started, there is a bit in the very first episode where the alien ambassador gets poisoned and it's shown that it's done by like somebody putting poison right on his hand, but he's like supposed to be in a special alien suit that has no, you know, interaction. And so people were like, Oh my God, that's a big plot hole. And the creator who for a rare thing in the nineties was like extremely online at the time. He's just like, that's not a plot hole. Just, just trust me on this one. It's gonna make sense. They're like, okay, (laughs) but it took, it basically took that level of him being like, no, really. It's I, I, I know it seems like one, but it's not. But only because he had this very locked down idea of what the the whole grand story was going to be. Right. That's the difference between a plot hole and a clue, right? Yes. It's what the author knows. <laughs> right. And then to go back to the mystery boxing that Cass was talking about, that's often, I'm going to put a clue. I don't know what it's a clue for yet, but it's probably going to be, right. it's probably going to be pretty cool <laughs> or not or... <laughs> I guess it means something somewhere. Well, and, I, and, you know, I think it's when you've thought through all the kind of like onion layers of your world building and, and played with them and kind of like tested them, that's when you can more easily punch the holes that look like clues instead of looking like you just didn't think this through. You know, it's like when right. everything else is is thoughtful and is fitting together in a way that works for the reader and is logical and the whole thing feels pretty seamless. Like that's when 
the whole feels like, oh, oh, I, I should notice this rather than I'm going to nitpick this because right. you're not a great world builder. Yeah, and I think that largely lands on... I mean, sometimes you're, you're expecting your readers to be a certain level of savvy, but most of this all rests squarely on the writer's shoulders and what they can do craft-wise, right? I mean, all of our readers and listeners are savvy and intelligent individuals. <laughs> of course. Yes. And I, and, and I do tend to assume that, that my readers are, are smart people. But yes, even smart people are not going to catch things that are not well-crafted. You know, it's right. you can't yeah. you can't blame your reader no. for your lack of of exactly. of putting together the pieces. That's one of the underlying principles that we're always working with on this show is that as world builders, it's better to know the answers to questions that'll never come up rather than to yeah. create questions that you haven't figured out the answers for. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So I love I love that the central artifacts in your world marina are are magical and it just makes me think of like how many possibilities there are um for like imbuing magic into the concept of histories and artifacts and you know if if everything in the museum was also maybe also had an ability yeah you know <laughs> also magic a, a little a little something extra like the antique shop is not just an antique shop it's a plethora of magic and spells right. you know you don't need a lot more security <laughs> <laughs> so yes yeah, so in this my one of my main characters is a regulator who's basically in charge of regulating enchantments and making sure that you know everything is legal and on the up and up and they are special items in the world so it's not every not everywhere you go is there an enchantment they are the you know expensive valuable pieces in the world that you can get licenses to get and almost anybody can buy but there are certain levels of magical ability that are not accessible to the public that only the state can own and things like that so it is a a complicated strict system (laughs) well i mean if you think about we lose a non-magical artifact in our world. Like, this may be sad. We may, as history geeks, want to recover it. But it doesn't have quite the same implications and, you know, risk that a magical object floating out in, you know, unregulated world there, you know, can have. If, If you lose the key to the magical basilisk cage and it happens to end up in some antique shop like this can go bad places right (laughs) this is not so a great places for storytelling bad places for the characters in your world (laughs) so just that extra impact of what how much more can artifacts matter if they're imbued with magic or allow you to access magic right it, and it definitely um, gets to be commentary on who has power and who has access and how do you get that access? Do you earn it? Are you just given it? So there's lots of social commentary you can make with it, too. I feel like magic grants artifacts the difference between value and ability. You know, if we dig up a thousand-year-old sword, mm-hmm. no one's going to go use that sword. <laughs> Technology has moved on. Never say never. We're going to stick it. Okay. Probably no one's going to use that idea. sword. Yeah. We but might probably nobody's going to go like and sell it to Renfair geeks. But the actual sword <laughs> is probably going to go in a museum. It's fine. 
But if we dig up a thousand-year-old magic sword, mm-hmm. well, I, I want to know what that does. Someone's going to keep using that. You know, whatever the object is, a ring or whatever. Right. If it continues to have a usable ability because of the magic, then that changes its nature to the present. Very true. Once it's, you know, its relationship to the present, once it's been unearthed. Absolutely. I love the concept, too, of a lost thing, you know, granting access. So, you know, we can't open this sealed book because we don't have the amulet and we don't know where it is or, you know, that kind of thing. I think that, that it's it's such a common trope in, in fantasy, but it's also, I think, one that can be pretty fun to play with. That trope is a lot of fun, but at the same time you have that thing where your plot then becomes a, like a collect the plot tokens thing where yes. it's like, oh, to open the book, <laughs> we need the amulet. To, but to get the amulet, we need to, to go to here. And then once we go to there, we're going to open a thing that shows the map to the next place. And you always I always ask myself, who set up this scavenger hunt? <laughs> <laughs> The great god. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like on some level, I I like it when it's at least explicitly like you know, old man Jenkins made the scavenger hunt because that's what that's the sort of thing that was fun to him. But like a lot of times, it is just like lost artifact leads to next lost artifact that just knows to create a path because there's gonna be a quest or something, and that always yeah, that yeah. always sort of rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> I also, you know, I don't know that we've played with as much as we could in the genre with we just aren't going to find it it is really and truly lost (laughs) and we're going to have to figure out some other way to deal with this problem (laughs) you know and i feel like there's there's fun to be had with that too like Mm -hmm. instead of finding the magical amulet we are going to research all of the archives and similar pieces that we have to see if we can figure out a way to recreate one or whatever you know it's there's 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 fun to be had with that or maybe or maybe only if you're someone who really enjoys researching material culture rarely do you see that sort of like kit bash engineering mindset in like solving the problem like it's not like it's like you need this amulet and this book and then this ring and the people like well we don't have those but i found this magic hat (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what if and I got a hammer. I MacGyvered it. We need a, we need a secondary world fantasy MacGyver. There really needs to be a fantasy MacGyver. That would be fun. <laughs> it was like I, t- I, I took a bag of holding and I took this and shoved them together, and that's gonna make a door to get us to this city. It should at least. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit about how things like get hidden by intention or accident, but what about like? Like, cities sometimes just get destroyed or moved. What about, like, the th- sorts of things mm-hmm. where the city is like, we're going to hide from y'all so that, because <laughs> the rest of you are terrible and we don't <laughs> we don't want to deal with you. Because I, th- I think well, yeah. that is a common trope in fantasy of, like, the secret hidden city, which I still want to know, like, where they get their food from. Because, you know. Details. Well, yeah, or or you have the trope of, like, the secret society that was formed for the sole purpose of protecting this item or this story Mm -hmm. or or whatever, and... As long as they all look like Ardeth Bay and the Mummy, I'm all right. <laughs> Bring me Say all fun of those stuff. You either have you either have Ardeth Bay and the Mummy or the really old knight in um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Or they just. But then again, you have. I know. If you right? have the secret society, then you Poor can have. Lived in a cave for centuries. <laughs> the people who like set up all your your plot quests, and so that you can have the thing on the back of the of the Declaration of Independence, and then. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> then that. Leaves. What I think would be hilarious is a group in a fantasy world that existed explicitly to do that. Like, we're going to create these fetch quests not to hide the secret mystical thing, but because we need to give the village youth something to do. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to create these quests to keep those kids out of our hair every generation. Like, all right, go find the, what is it this week? Flipping through the notebook like, uh, the sword of changing. Yeah, go find it. Go. It's like a really complex Big Brothers Big Sisters program. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Every couple of years, there's just some kid in the neighborhood who's just too much, and so therefore we tell him he's the chosen one. We send, yeah, right, exactly. we just, just send him away. Send him away. <laughs> Either he will come back having you know grown and matured, or he gets eaten by something. Either way, we win. We come out on top. <laughs> I, w- I would really love a chosen one narrative that that's the twist of like, no, we just, you were just a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't know what to do with you. I don't know. <laughs> I do like the secret society thing a lot. There may or may not be secret society stuff. In- <laughs> Always <laughs> fun. Always fun. Penalties. Which honestly, in some ways, that's another craft point of we as readers know the trope, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. when you, bring us into a secret society we're like oh ears perk up like okay i see you yes. know to pay attention now so you know you can kind of well, consider and craft we it know the old man moved the sconce on the wall know. and it opened up opened up the passage behind there that's some good stuff it's about to happen we're gonna pay attention yes bunch of people in robes meeting in one place <laughs> exactly. like oh yep there it is why do we have the robes they're just comfy to be honest they're just we like them. they really are no, but that is a good point. If if in your secondary world, you know, you don't have the Statue of Liberty that you can point to and go, aha, you do have these other tropes that are reader touchstones that you can you can rely on. It's very true. Or subvert them. Or subvert careful. them. <laughs> <laughs> this is just our book club. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> It's just what we wear for this. this, is, this is, Why not? Have pockets for all the books. <laughs> oh wait, I'm sorry. You guys wanted the secret society meeting? No, Tuesdays. Tuesdays it's Garden Club. I don't. Right. <laughs> sorry. Come back Thursdays at 8 p.m. Yeah, you'll find. Very, it. very busy community center here. So. <laughs> and then on Thursdays, it's a support group for the children who were sent off on pointless quests. <laughs> Hansel and Gretel are big attendees. <laughs> they run the meeting. <laughs> Founders, actually, the founding members. Yes. Well, I, I think that we are coming to the end of our episode, um, and I want to make sure we have enough time for Marina to leave us with, with a little gift, as is our tradition, um, that when we have a guest on the podcast, they leave us a little piece of world-building trivia to slide into our um, second world that is a, a part of our podcast. Yes, and I was thinking, so since we were talking about artifacts, obviously it should be some sort of an artifact, and the secret society thing fits right in because I was thinking there could be a cult whose holy book is the enchanted diary of a 12-year-old girl, 
And whoever reads from the original pages is instantly de-aged to a 12-year-old. <laughs> so what's oh. fun is this could also somehow play into these poor children who are sent off on these poor <laughs> <laughs> It's just an endless loop. An endless loop. Well, and I love the idea of de-aging to 12 years old because that is like simultaneously like glorious magic and curse. Right, I know, Because right? it's yeah. like the worst possible like middle school. <gasps> but still, yeah. youth. Exactly how I feel. I'm like, that's the worst time of my life. I would never want to go back there. But also, so many no. possibilities. Everything is open. Right. I love it. I love if it. If I was going to go back there, there had better be a magical item at the end of that quest for me. <laughs> the only thing that would get me to go back to being but i could also again. see that as a as a cult using that as their like immortality trick like you, you're on your deathbed it's like read the book read from the book <laughs> no i can't it was so awkward <laughs> oh i can't somebody on their deathbed i would literally rather die <laughs> Excellent. Well, well thank you so much, Marina. It was it was delightful having you on. I think we're all looking forward to reading Helm of Midnight. Thank you. Very um, much. So thank you again and thank you for the magical diary of a twelve year old. Which we will treasure. Or hide. Or hide. Or lose. Yeah. We're not sure yet. Oh no, accidentally. We'll pass off that to the unsuspecting. <laughs> Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on April 28th, where we'll be talking about modesty and immodesty and what that can mean for your cultures. And speaking of immodesty, we have some exciting news that we'll be sharing and talking about in that episode. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.